Welcome back, fellow music lovers. You are now tuned in to yet another exciting adventure with us here on Discologist. I'm your host, Kevin, as usual, coming to you live-ish from the tiny shack in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So happy to have you here hanging out today where we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about music per se. We're gonna talk about the history of music. Now, if you listen to uh, this podcast at all, you know about our sister podcast, Dead to Me, uh, hosted by our great friend Mr. Casey Ray. And uh, Casey is a lot of things. He is a uh, historian, a, a musicologist, an educator, a cat dad, a real dad, um, a great friend, and now he is an author. His book, William Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll, is out in stores now. Uh, I read it earlier this summer. It is one of my favorite sort of music bio books ever and that's maybe I'm a little biased but I don't think so because I also love William Burroughs and for any of you guys who don't know William Burroughs is you this is going to be a double good podcast see there was this cat uh, back in the day he was one of the beat poets and he influenced everybody uh, from David Bowie to Bono you too and uh, he did it by just basically being intelligent and being free thinking and being out there and avoiding control of his system uh, to the very end. And uh, and what Casey has done here is sort of catalog some of these stories. People like Kurt Cobain, who interested in him, David Bowie, Bob Dylan, uh, more Lou Reed, Patti Smith, uh, and and traced his history through. The sort of timeline of rock and roll—it's sort of a, uh, a Zelig-like adventure, if you if you know that reference. But uh, but at any rate, the book is fantastic, and uh, and he's been talking about doing this for a good while now, and it's out in the world. So I thought, what would be better than to sit down with him and talk about the book uh, to find out what he thought about it now that his baby is out in the wild. So that's what we're going to do today, and uh, and that's all we're going to do today. So. Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. Before that, before that, you heard me mention Dead to Me. That's our uh, sister podcast. Did you know that Dead to Me is on the Osiris Podcast Network? OsirisPod.com. If you go there, you'll find uh, just a, a slew of shows, a plethora of shows all about music, your favorite music, music you haven't heard, conversations, concerts, uh, videos, news, everything. It is, it is a, a great network. We're part of the Osiris Network. We're happy to be a part of that. Uh, partially because we're also working with Jambase. Osiris Pod is paired with Jambase.com, and you know those guys. They're everywhere, making jam music everywhere. But the point I'm trying to make is that if you love music, and I know you do because you're listening to this podcast, and you need to check out OsirisPod.com and Jambase.com. That's where all the music lives in 2019. With that out of the way and the bills paid, let's get to it. It's time to have your mind blown, kids, as we're sitting down with Casey Ray. And you're going to learn all about William Burroughs and the cult of rock and roll. Mr. Ray, this is not a 
basement, but it's going to have to do. Some say this is the basement of the internet. I thought that was uh, 8chan. 8chan, yeah. We are, what, 8 cube chan or something like that. But Nine and a half chan. Besides being uh, a guitarist. Yeah, besides being a nerd, besides being a guitarist, besides being a burgeoning country star, huh. host of deadtomepod.com, or dead to me. Um, besides all that, you are now a serious uh, and actual published author. Your book, William Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll, came out when? Was it like last month? Oh, it's a little while ago now. I think time's flying. I think uh, it was July. It came it was out July. July. So yeah, not yeah. too long ago, but it feels like it's been out for a little while. This yeah. is for... Uh, people who don't know, this is sort of, this is one of those lifelong pursuits for you, I think. <laughs> this is, yeah, well, it, t- it kind of took a lifetime to get, get it out of my system, I guess. Um, the book was, uh, not necessarily something I set out to write and certainly didn't, um, have the subject of William S. Burroughs in mind, um, if I had ever dreamed of writing a book. But through a confluence of coincidences, uh, the opportunity to you know pitch a proposal via some agents who found me uh, from my other work as a sort of music industry pundit or my former life as that. And then they did a little bit more digging and found out that, yeah, lo and behold, I had been writing about music um, over the years. And you know before I came to D.C., I was actually a uh, full-time music writer. So that background preceded me, right? And yeah. um, they were like, what do you got, kid? And, uh, you know, it's like one of those weird opportunities where you never know when like a Hollywood studio is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, all right, let's spitball. So, yeah, I was in a room with these guys, my agents, and um, and I was just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall. Uh, They said, all right, that all sounds good. Go home and think about it and come back with maybe like three to five ideas that you think could uh, work as a book. I went home. I thought about it. And this is the only idea that came up which was, uh, you know, this character, William S. Burroughs, sort of a disreputable figure in 20th century literature, uh, but massively influential uh, in literature. He also had a tremendous impact on the development of, I guess, what we call rock and roll music over, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah, I would say a lot more than that, too. (laughs) Yeah, and it's ongoing. Uh, And and the funny thing is, when the book was finally published, I started noticing that there was uh, maybe... uh, an uptick of interest apart from the book. Uh, And so as it turns out, this thing seems to be well-timed and it reinforces the case that I was trying to make that uh, this guy who's largely identified as a beat generation writer also kind of unlocked a lot of possibilities for a broad range of musical artists um, over the decades. Yeah, he's he was a uh, he's a sort of a touch point. I think for any any uh, any weirdos listening, I think this you discover this, and yeah, I think you've spoken about this. You discover this at some point in your life, and a lot of it, I think, the first the first point of contact is naked lunch. Yeah, in general, for people, for a lot of people. and and if you, I don't know when you first read Naked Lunch, but I know you wrote a book on it, so you were similarly infected by it as I am. You know, it, it, you first read it, and it's just like, what the actual fuck is this? Yeah, it's kind what of, is this guy on? It's kind of grotesque. I mean, it, I, I'd never kind seen of. anything like it uh, in in print before, and I was already a pretty adventurous and voracious reader. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up an only child in a no horse town in Central Maine. There wasn't a lot else to do. You know, I had kind of morbid tastes. I liked 
horror movies. I liked freaky, weird shit. I liked gothic literature. Uh, you know, I'd even read, you know, stuff above my, um, <laughs> above my station uh, when I was a kid, you know, stuff like Henry Miller and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was a teenager, my cooler friends turned me on to you know the likes of Jack Kerouac. And, you know, so I had some exposure to these, um, these authors of the uh, early to mid 20th century. Americans in particular, um, but nothing prepared me for William S. Burroughs. I mean, I'd read shit tons of H.P. Lovecraft, and that didn't even prepare me for. Yeah, William and S. that's Burroughs. a good point because there there are people who, uh, you know, and I think you, you quote this in the book that there are people who who sort of smash forms and stuff, and they think that's edgy. You know, and, all right, Edge Lord, you're no William S. Burroughs. <laughs> yeah. I you don't know. think anybody can be William S. Burroughs. No. This is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, because of the the singular sort of individual that he was and uh, the nature of his intellect, his probing mind, and then also his life experiences, which were, you know, on the grim side of existence, even though he was a child of privilege. All of those things come together to create this sort of outlaw icon that was catnip to all of these musicians. And in the book, you know, I'm not just trying to make a um, Wikipedia entry of like, you know, right. oh, here's where Mick Jagger hangs out with Burroughs. Here's where Dylan hangs out with Burroughs. Here's where McCartney hangs out. Here's Bowie. Here's Patti Smith. Here's Lou Reed. All of those folks are in there. Um, but what I'm really trying to do is to show how each of these artists took something different from Burroughs. Um, yeah. Burroughs' yeah. main guy, James Grauerholtz, who um, is still alive and the executor of his estate and was his literary assistant in the back half of his life. He, he kind of challenged me to do two things. And the first was, you know, can you actually depict Burroughs as a character, a person, a human being besides the sort of icon, the godfather of punk, the Pope, Pope of dope. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing he, he kind of encouraged me to do was to look at Burroughs as a, uh, a facet or a prism and I think that that actually helped me dial into the uh, unique and and oftentimes uh, specific or idiosyncratic reasons uh, other artists in a medium that Burroughs didn't even care about music, uh, yeah. nonetheless drew such uh, powerful transformative stuff from. This yeah, and I, and I think you you definitely succeeded in humanizing him, and I think that's that's when my takeaway from the book was that as somebody who has like, studied all Burroughs' work, studied his biography. Uh, and honestly, I hadn't revisited it for 10 years. It was a joy to like sort of dive back into this and have a more um, not not an origin story, per se, yeah. but ha- but have a more just like humanistic look at this, because so often, especially in music, uh, you know, we deify people who make art. And and there's there's no good answer whether that's right or wrong unless you're talking about Bowie and, and absolutely should be deified, <laughs> but but you know that in that keeps us from understanding the humanity in the art more Sometimes often than it not. Does. Yeah, I mean, and, there's a lot of artifice I think involved, and in, in particularly with somebody like Bowie, it's um, masks all the way down, so to speak. And mm-hmm. there's aspects of that with Burroughs too, and there's no doubt that a lot of people were drawn to um, that sort of outsider image. Look, this is a guy who shot his wife to death uh, in a drunken game of William Tell that was ruled an accident. But Burroughs never let himself off the hook for that accident or otherwise. And I don't either. And then, you know, he's coming out of the uh, the straight laced um, 40s and 50s. And he was the child of uh, fading industrial wealth. You know, he's the the great grandson of the inventor of the Burroughs adding machine. Yeah. 
And so, you know, he was a little bit better off than, you know, some of his um, contemporaries. But at the same time, he, he experienced life kind of in the in the seedy margins. I mean, he was sort of the first Trustafarian, but, you know, it, it, it's just a little bit. He got like 200 bucks a month, um, which was a sizable th- sum if you're talking about the 50s Absolutely. and 60s. And he kept getting that money from his parents until he turned about 50 years old. And that, I think, did allow him to, well, you know, be a drug addict and uh, yeah. and and kind of move around the world. But he wasn't living large either, you know, and um and so I think that he uh, also fetishized the sort of idea of being a self-made man. So uh, you, you talk about this as being like sort of a joy to revisit me. I wanted to take a shower after some of it is pretty pretty grim. Yeah. I mean, for people who, who aren't familiar with it. So he was he was uh, this radical thinker, uh, which is something that has always fascinated me is because I don't. I don't like to believe that if you are just if you're given like unlimited resources, you can come to these truths. But there's so much there's so much truth that he came to. That was one of the things that people were drawn to him for. Uh, one of them being just the nature of language. But, you know, this is a guy like you mentioned. He shot his wife. He slept with young boys. He a lot. Uh, yeah. He he, he uh, was a notorious heroin addict. He you know, and, and he. Uh, I think a lot of it, though, was aimed at, at sort of destruction of himself. And what I've always been sort of what's fascinating me about that is that he wasn't he adamantly wasn't like, I'm not going to actually destroy myself. I'm not going to take myself out. Yeah, he did, but, he wasn't, you know, glamorizing addiction either. That, mm, I want no. to be very clear about that. He was writing really matter of factly in books like Junkie about what that experience is. And that in turn influenced guys like Lou Reed. So you have this sort of slice of life reportage this um you know this uh sort of almost journalistic impression of this of the underground and um and then of course there was this sort of more radical writing like like naked lunch and later the cut up uh method where whereby he would take um existing text and cut it into into pieces and rearrange it sort of um a dada method but he was inspired by his um good friend and fellow artist Brian Geisen. So these guys were using cut-ups, you know, not just as a get-out-of-jail-free card in terms of creative um, expression, like, you know, looking for easy inspiration through random juxtaposition, but they also looked at it as a kind of form of occult divination. And uh, Brian Geisen said, we we perform cut-ups until the machine arrives. And Burroughs said, when you cut into the present, the future leaks out. And so they they really did have a magical worldview. And and, and I think that that aspect of Burroughs's um, outlook was extremely important and compelling to not just David Bowie, but folks like Jimmy Page, uh, Genesis P. Orridge of Throbbing Gristle, pretty much every, um, you know, industrial act and uh, to follow. So. And that, and that magical world view that he not just these other people have, but specifically Burroughs. Do you think that? Because uh, uh, I, I completely agree with that. And was that almost a defense mechanism? Mechanism. I think in think? some ways he wanted to redo the past, and you can see why yeah. he would want to redo the past. There were questions that he had. He, he you know, he probably was. Um, he was never in the closet, so to speak, and he was. Mm-hmm. I think he was very proudly. Uh, homosexual but I also feel that there was a sort of latent um, kind of uh, antipathy 
towards that in, in, in his being. And he wanted to know where that, that came from. Uh, another thing was, yeah, you know, he shot his wife, Joan Vollmer in the head and they were very, very close. Okay. They yeah. had a codependent, a, a, you know, relationship sort of bound in intoxication and, and, uh, you know, petty criminality. But, uh, at the same time, they were, um, in, very well, intellectually well matched and, and deeply fond of one another. And I do think that, you know, this was not an, an act that we could say was, you know, intentional in the traditional sense. Well, but as malicious. Burroughs said, you know, there are no accidents and there are no coincidences. So I think a lot of what he was trying to do and one of the meta themes that he explored was the idea of control with a capital C. And basically mm-hmm. that, see, that can be a metaphor for addiction. It can be a metaphor for for the establishment. It can be a metaphor for the ugly spirit inside him that drove him to uh, commit heinous acts uh, over which he believed he had no control. And also, I think it's a it's a metaphor for something, you know, metaphysical. Um, And this is where you get to his ideas of language being a virus. You know, he saw us as the soft machines on which, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the script is emblazoned and somewhere deep, deep inside us in our development as a species was this impetus to um, be oral and then this impetus to codify our existence, which, of course, you know, forever changes our perception and traps us into a, 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 a kind of defined view of reality. And so he wasn't just trying to smash the system. Uh, he was trying to do that for sure. Um, but he was also trying to actually get to the heart of what he believed to be the, the fundamental imprisoning uh, factors of human existence. But at the same time, like framing that as a soft machine and, and having the stuff imprinted on it is weirdly walking up to embracing some sort of like theology, some deep theology, whether it's Judeo-Christian or anything. But it's kind like, of I think his view is like in some ways is Manichean. It, um, mm-hmm, if you've ever yeah. if you're familiar with William Blake, uh, the visionary, um, I think, 14th century uh, printmaker and, and poet and uh, just all around spiritual uh, visionary. It's similar, right? Um, there's a Gnostic aspect to it, and I explore that in the book. I think that probably appealed to some of the musicians. Um, you know, definitely uh, Genesis P. Orridge and David Bowie would be mm-hmm. among them. But but I also think that you know his game was like true transcendence, like, and I think you know for him the junk high was that. It's sort of like a. a it's a nihilistic Zen almost, you know, it's a, it's a blotting out of, uh, of any, any point of reference or distinction. Um, he, you know, and, and he went about it this way and, and that way was ultimately, you know, kind of devastating in some aspects and in other ways allowed him to see the world, uh, through a different lens, a deeply scarred, uh, but absolutely widescreen lens. Yeah, and he also, I think, with that language as a virus idea, he he saw, and you point this out in the book, he foretold sort of the internet. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and how well, we the cu- react. The cut-ups are the internet. The, the cut-ups, cut-ups are, the, are internet. the internet. Every aspect of our current existence uh, reflects the some of the principles that he and Brian Geisen were uncovering. You know, some forty, fifty years prior, and Burroughs specifically said that in the future. Uh, information will be transmitted as kind of rearranged u- tiny units of word, sound, and image, um, you know, kind of all mixed up and communicated electronically. 
He straight up said that. And, you know, that's memes. That's mashups. And if you doubt the potency of what this is, and if you doubt the idea that Burroughs wasn't serious when he said smash the citadels of the Enlightenment, just look at 4chan. Just look at those darker corners of the Internet where, you know, there are people who are raging against whatever the, uh, uh, you know, just unbridled chaos agents. Uh, Burroughs is wild boys made real. And they're they're weaponizing this. Uh, They're weaponizing those small units of information juxtaposed for maximum psychic impact. Burroughs was interested in that. He predicted it. And, you know, more disturbingly, I think he was actually trying to usher it in. So in some ways, (laughs) um, you know, mission accomplished. Uh, And that's a that's an aspect of writing this book that I would not have really been able to entertain at the outset but kind of gave me the creeps <laughs> yeah that's something i actually never considered that he was trying to usher that in uh sort of like a doomsday prophet i mean the idea that language is now uh completely divorced from internal monologue um because as machines help but uh you know we can it can just be manipulated to to do whatever and have like actionable consequences uh, more so than any time in history, but you know. Well, that so you- for a, for a magical thinker like Burroughs, um, you know, the fundamental thing is the 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 principle in the in the um, sort of occult of the twentieth mm-hmm. century is impacting, affecting, or changing reality by yeah. imposing one's uh, you know will, and it's kind of. You get that with like, you know, the Aleister Crowley and uh, post Crowley kind of chaos magic folks. But Burroughs was like a groundbreaker in in that area. And he was actually all of his art wasn't for a popular market. It was he didn't give a fuck about any of that. He was actually trying to perform magical operations and he wasn't just doing it with text. He was doing it with with cut up audio. He was doing it with uh, uh, graphic image and collage and. Um, I think he was a true multimedia artist, and that also was something that really uh, uh, sort of endeared him to um, certain progressive, uh, I don't mean the progressive rock genre, but like sort of musicians who uh, didn't want to uh, be stuck in sort of the the three-minute pop ditty. U2 Zoo TV tour basically just ran with that idea. Yeah, and, well, and, you, you know, and, and was that brought to life? And in fact, used Burroughs in a lot of their content. But it starts time. all the way back with like Paul McCartney. Oh, sure. Paul McCartney like set Burroughs up in a in a basement flat owned by Ringo Starr with the purpose of having Burroughs do audio cut ups, audio research and development. And Paul would go down there, smoke hash, and and you know join the fun. Paul also used that space to write Beatles songs. He wrote Eleanor Rigby there. William mm-hmm. S. Burroughs was the first person on the planet not named Paul McCartney to experience Eleanor Rigby. He was present at birth for a lot of this stuff. Uh, he shows up in the lives of these musicians at such interesting points. Um, oftentimes it's a crossroads, a creative crossroads, or uh, a, there's a desire to break free of whatever kind of stultifying conditions those artists found themselves in. Bob Dylan's another great example. Uh, Dylan um, tracks down, hunts down Burroughs in the village uh, right around the time where he just can't take it anymore. He's tired of being the voice of the yeah, uh, yeah. of the Bleecker Street set, you know. He wants to um, break free, wants to do something more radical. And, you know, after his meeting with Burroughs, you have 
you have him committing the ultimate heresy, going electric at the Newport <laughs> Folk Festival, right. releasing, uh, you know, the pair of albums, um, Highway 61 uh, Revisited and um, bringing it all back home that to me, uh, you know, sort of herald the arrival of the true Dylan. Was what they were if there's any to, such thing was was what they were drawn to was that like a misperception of Burroughs because he clearly like as as you describe in your book like li- lived a, a simple life I mean for a long time he lived in a bunker with no windows you know near CBG yeah, I mean they 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 are projecting on him I think but at the same time um, you know there has to be a seed of the inspiration and I think. For some folks, that is a life lived radically outside of the conventions of right. society. And I think for others, it's a, you know, his bold kind of intellectual explorations of the meaning of consciousness, the nature of mind and, you know, communication, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then I, another side of that would be, you know, maybe his... Uh, his willingness to enter into other states, altered states, um, all of these things and more, I, I, I think, um, inspired different artists to his work. And then, of course, there's the writing itself. So uh, yeah. if you're Lou Reed, maybe it's Junkie that you're um, you're into. If you're David Bowie, maybe it's the Wild Boys that you're into or Patti Smith, for example. Uh, and I think everybody draws something different from Burroughs. So in one part, it's projection, but it, but it also... All of that stuff was there. All of that is, it's a uh, weird thing, yeah. You know, yeah. a product of this guy's uh, singular mind. And I was thinking more in terms of like an anchor, where it's like when when artists, especially at a higher level, like create, like they often get lost. You know, people, see people overtaken by fame or whatever, and it's confusing because they're just sort of putting. Yeah, their he didn't give a shit there. about any of that. You huh? know, he. he I know he didn't. I know he didn't. But I know, like, when you talk about Kurt Cobain coming to visit, like. He was a big fan of his work, but really he he almost seemed to want uh, like a father figure. I think they I think some people are looking for approval from Burroughs. And, you know, he wasn't really just going to hand that out. And he, I don't think he ever really no. thought that anybody necessarily needed it. The most Burroughsian thing you can do is is not seek out that type of thing. And yet all of these people made pilgrimage. However, um, even though he didn't really care so much about the rock and roll music, he did understand two things. He understood rock music and rock stars as being capable of shifting the culture. And so, um, you know, he wanted to plug into that and uh, and feed it or or draw from its energy. And, and at various points, he did so. Uh, another thing that he was sort of taken by was the shamanic aspect of this, you know, the entrancement. And I, he really had a, a, a deep long-term abiding friendship with Patti Smith that lasted uh, for the uh, entire, you know, end of his life right up to, you know, when he died. Um, And, you know, so that was genuine. When Cobain came to visit, uh, their um, relationship also was very genuine and and Burroughs recognized something in Kurt um, that, that, that desire to fill the void inside of himself but, um, you know, as Kurt Cobain's tour manager told me, and I think this is the first time anyone had ever really kind of revealed what really went down on that day in Lawrence, Kansas, you know, Bill took Alex McLeod aside, Burroughs' tour manager, and said, your friend hasn't learned his limitations. Yeah. Uh, and he needs to. Uh, well, and, and soon. And, and it's that kind of stuff he that's didn't. wild to me in reading. Yeah, he didn't. That's kind of stuff is wild to me in reading the book and, and hearing uh, things like that because as much as Burroughs didn't want to uh, necessarily be that person, like he had that insight. And and he was delivered truths like that like throughout his career to people. You know, you mentioned the, the relationship with Patti Smith. You know, that was he, – he literally was like a father figure to her. 
Um, yeah, and, and it was know, sweet. We exactly. I was just about to say that we, you know, focus on the sort of darkness of uh, some of this story. But the other part of Burroughs that's interesting is that he was a very genteel, polite, and mm-hmm. deeply caring individual uh, with the folks who comprised his relatively small inner circle. And uh, a lot of the musicians in this book kind of ended up within that inner circle, which is interesting, and he had a genuine affection. The other thing that kind of um, I need to underscore is you know how funny Burroughs is. This yeah. guy has just a scathing wit. He's one of the all-time satirists. He's right up there with Jonathan Swift, you know. He's um he's how like many, a he's like a really you, fucked up Mark Twain or something. How many times do you think you have to read Naked Lunch to get that? Oh, I don't know. I think it comes right out. I mean, you read do, anything do you? like, oh yeah, fuck yeah. That was actually why I liked it cuz I the irreverence really really uh, um mm. really rung my bells you know if you read something like the talking asshole routine or any of the scenes with dr benway you know who's yeah. uh who is just a sort of placeholder for trump essentially you know yep. the the people who um you know a living dunning kruger test you know like the mm-hmm. people yeah. who actually believe that because you know they're so fucking awesome that they can do anything in the world with no consequences you know f- and, and fuck everyone else and a, a lot of that um that hubris and that um, buffoonery, that, that ignorant buffoonery shows up in his work. And, of course, you know, everything, anything is fair game for William S. Burroughs' sight lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, yeah, this, there, there's, a, there's a line, a quote no from him. It says, uh, anytime you were defined, you were caught. And that is that is really the ultimate, like, DIY ethos. Yeah. Uh, that in fact that, and, and. It is. We've talked about this. It's this weird DIY gene that fucks with you, but at the same time, I think it it can like save you uh, from a life of mediocrity. And yeah. uh, and you know when you find something like this that is not just fuck you, fuck everything, uh, and there's actual subtlety, there's humor, there is instruction on how to use language in a better way. Uh, it's yeah. it's a remarkable, like mind blowing thing, with or without hallucinogenics. Like I wouldn't su- suggest that um, you know people necessarily have to suffer for their art uh, no. to make to make good art or worthwhile art, but uh, it does seem to be that a lot of the uh, you know musicians that appear in this book suffered you know personal traumas or you know had things happen in, at key points in their own development as human beings that set them on a course and that's something they have in common with Burroughs as well and one of the other themes that sort of starts to emerge is that you see this is you know how people how outsiders create family how people who have been rejected um, you know by society or their parents or yeah. their peers you know reinvent themselves and create tribes and Burroughs was kind of the the uh, the the center of of one kind of tribe, and I think even though you know there's no possibility of people seeking him out and uh, spending time with him anymore, uh, I do believe that he continues to be a strange magnet for certain types of folks who are uh, willing and and interested in exploring the fringes of their own psyches and also the outer regions of what is possible creatively. Yeah. There's this line um, or this belief that he had, and we sort of touched on it, that the universe was pre-recorded, and he spoke about music as a way, um, uh, a version of time travel. Yeah. And again, exactly. I, well, and I forgot, I'd sort of forgotten about that, but that certainly uh, 
for me that that is the case and but that that in and of itself the idea that's re, uh, pre-recorded and can be manipulated is such a good uh psychological coping tool yeah if it's recorded it can be edited uh, yeah and I, yeah and, and, and then you, and you, I would say that overall, what Burroughs was doing was practicing a cult, a, a kind of occult media arts. And, um, yeah. so even though he wasn't like the kind of person who's going to run to the store to pick up the new Rolling Stones LP, he really did understand the power of sound, uh, the power of music to, um, to kind of shift things on the time track, so to speak. And if you have any doubts about that, you know, just put on a, Put on a piece of music that you haven't heard in a long time and find yourself transported to a different time, a different version of yourself. And what Burroughs was presupposing was that, you know, if you mix in, in, you know, some type of intentionality and uh, add the element of randomness, you can uncover aspects about yourself, reality, and maybe even change the dynamics uh, between the two. Yeah, for sure. So where are we without? You know, the influence is still being felt, obviously, and people will continue to like dig into this. Although, it'll be interesting to see is this gonna is his work gonna become like in a far future uh, a, a, like a religious text? <laughs> um, uh, but, know, but where, but where are things, we without him? One of the things about writing this book that was weird is that you know, the, and a lot of the feedback that I got for, have gotten from people has been like, oh wow, um, that that story was just there and now now it's mm-hmm. told you found a way to tell it and thanking me for doing that so on some level maybe this will contribute to uh, a, a, an understanding of his work you know in a in a context that previously didn't exist you know the trojan horse here is that oh it's a story about musicians hanging out with william s burroughs we but the real thing <laughs> is like you know inside that trojan horse are all these relevant deadly relevant ideas uh, that really do relate to our present and maybe where we're going, if anywhere, <laughs> as, a, as, a species, as a species, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and well, there you go. Burroughs was actually a, uh, one of the earliest uh, radical environmentalists as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you look at stuff like, oh, well, Elon Musk wants to get in his space arc and Jeff Bezos or whoever, they want to go X planet. Uh, so did Burroughs. You know, like he was talking about this stuff in the uh, early 60s and and so much of it is contemporaneously relevant but in terms of um what i expect people to 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 feel about burroughs in the future i i really have no idea at all i am happy though that this book has been really well received and that more than that like people get it right and yeah, um yeah and all i really wanted out of it was to have one person get it but you know when like the fucking New York Times gets it or NPR gets it, you know, it's like a bonus. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, you know, because it's always going to be there under the surface. And I think this book came along at just the right time, like when we needed it, um, because ideas like this and and there are other like clearly other radical thinkers. Uh, you know, I think like Hunter S. Thompson, for one. Right. Uh, and from that time period, the. These ideas, the the actual meaning of them gets lost along the way. And subverted to like own personal use, which I think maybe Burroughs would love that. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe, well, sure. Yeah, maybe I mean, the, the idea of deauthoring is very much present in the cutups, and mm-hmm, again, yeah. I think that's like kind of the 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 existence that we live with regard to attribution on this thing called the internet, right? Yeah, um, it's about the impact, not necessarily about the authorship. And I think he would be delighted uh, if the the impact was there. And I don't know that he necessarily cared. Uh, I, I think he believed in intellectual property. I'm not saying he didn't, but 
but I also think that at the end of the day, it's about the transformative p- potential of of ideas uh, right. and exp- and how they're expressed. And if people draw uh, things from that that allow them to uh, find ways to create and relate to their reality and and affect their reality, then I think he would be a hundred percent for it. The funny thing is that the next book that I'm working on is more on, I guess like, it's kind of like a, a, a twin of this, but it's, mm-hmm. yeah. if, if here's a story that's sort of like the, the Sith, and now I'm going to tell the story of the Jedi, <laughs> maybe. Um, but you know, I'm looking at a similar period coming out of, um, the beat generation, but instead of, uh, going into the universe of, you know, like, uh, the occult and, 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 and heroin, I'm going to be looking at psychedelic culture, uh, Buddhism and the grateful dead, which is like on one level, it seems like it's a complete, uh, 360 degree turn. But on another level, I'm starting to see how it, uh, it fits together. So I wrote this book and, and it was well received and, um, gave me the opportunity to, to do this other thing. So in a couple of years, maybe we'll come back and talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they're both chasing the same tiger, man. Uh, I, I think this, this quest for, uh, personal enlightenment, not cult enlightenment, even though he, and what you're yeah. going to be writing about is certainly a cult, but then, you know, he certainly has spawned a cult. Yeah. I'm uh, definitely it, interested in cults. I mean, yeah, why, you're definitely interested. There's in no doubt about it. And there's no way to write the, the book that I'm writing, The Zen of the Dead, without looking at the dynamics <laughs> of, of that kind of influence. Um, but, you know, I also think of like, you know, what would it look like if that was benevolent? <laughs> so I, I was just going to say that. So so here's what the funniest and most uh, being older and, and having William Burroughs, Burroughs work be part of my life since I was like 16. So like 31 years is how normal these ideas that he put out feel now. Yeah. Like it's just like the cut up method. Uh, sure. is radical at the time, but was it, it just hadn't been discovered. And people are like, it's like any new shiny thing you find. You're like, my yeah. mind's blown. But then you start to think about it and think how the world functions. And, and so it's more, like how he was so like tuned into that. Yeah. I mean, and- our, rea- our, our experiential reality, even apart from technology like the Internet, we're living in a sort of ran- universe of random access impressions. Um, yeah. And what <laughs> right. and what like the the, the cut ups did um, in a limited sense, you know, they didn't scale uh, in the Silicon Valley uh, uh, sense of the word. But what the Internet allows for is, you know, the mass dissemination, the viral spread yes. of, of uh, randomized and rejuxtaposed sound, text and image. And what Burroughs was um, really kind of um, banging on was uh, the idea that they, this could be weaponized because, you know, sadly, he saw the world as a fundamentally hostile place. The universe is a hostile place. And he was obsessed with defending himself uh, against, you know, these forces named and unnamed. Um, but, you know, instead of defense, you know, we also have the idea of kind of radical um, unmaking of uh, consensus reality. Yeah. And he also was kind of interested in where that would lead. But the problem is, you know, he he, he checked out in the mid 90s. And yeah. uh, now we're sort of, I think, dealing with the 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 detritus of the <laughs> some of those dark imaginings. Yeah. And in defending himself, you know, I think he, his, his, his ideas like sort of defend it in the end, defend us all where, um, who do your mind is out there like this now? Oh man. Or is there, or does uh, there need to be? 
I think Burroughs is one of a kind uh, in pretty much every way. And I don't know that there's going to be an era anytime soon with that many sort of titans of, mm. uh, of the intellect uh, and creativity. I mean, it really was the, the, mid to, uh, the mid-20th century really was a, a seemingly a, a, a fecund time um, for the arts and for uh, intellectual pursuits and spirituality. Is that because we just can't see it, Because um, that sounds a little I think it's been I think it's been atomized. Uh, and I, I'm, okay. I'm not saying that it's not present. I just think that there's just like a bazillion tiny shards of that. Right. Uh, and you'll find them everywhere you look if you have the right eyes to see. Uh, but, you know, are we going to be able to point to a sort of singular figure that represents um, or summarizes, you know, all of these different cross currents? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, and I can't think of, you know, who that might be off the top of my head. But I do know that I catch impressions um, and, and, and fleeting right. glimpses of that energy, that animating spirit pretty much everywhere. And in that way, I think it's a really exciting time. We've got super interesting music that's being made right now. Um, I like it better than I did, you know, in the two thousands, that's for sure. Mm. Um, and in terms of, uh, other movements, well, you know, I think that there's, uh, I'm, ex- I'm, I'm sensing a renewed interest in explore consciousness exploration of many different flavors. So I think in some ways the Burroughs spirit is alive and well. And in my next book, The Zen of the Dead, that's what um, I think we're really going to take that uh, to the to a more um, logical conclusion or we'll extrapolate further on those ideas. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that maybe we need uh, one singular individual to sort of uh, light the way. I think we need a lot of different folks um, demanding of themselves that uh, they commit to a new way of, of being. And hopefully we pull that together soon enough uh, to scale. develop the resilience necessary to survive as a species. Yeah. Well, uh, the book is amazing, Casey. And, uh, if I hadn't told you that <laughs> so, well, already, uh, but, uh, this is, uh, everybody go out and get this book, read it and then read Burroughs. And I, I say, read this first because you need a, you need an on-ramp. You, you provide it. And yeah, maybe uh, it's a good guide to that, uh, crazy, horrible universe. If it is, Awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. So we're going to take a quick break and come back real quick, finish this out. Uh, be back in a few. Have we lost our minds? Will this never end? It could depend on your date. William Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll is available everywhere. You can buy books. You can buy an e-book. Uh, you cannot have my signed copy of this book from Casey. I treasure that. don't have a lot of physical media, but when a friend writes a book, you take the physical media, kids. Uh, Casey is, if you, if you happen to run into him in D.C., he does a lot of things like these classic albums. Sundays at Songbird in D.C., a great music venue, great record shop there. Uh, run into him. I, I recommend that making him your friend is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, we've gotten to know Casey here over the past three or four years. He is one of my favorite people on the planet. I'm so happy that he 
uh, has done this, and he's working on other stuff now. Um, it's just a uh, a good human to have in the world, good human to know, and uh, maybe you'll be lucky enough to know him someday soon. If he does a book reading, go to it. Say hi. At any rate, uh, that's it for this episode of Discologist. We are going to get out of here real quick. Check the socials at, at Chunky Glasses, because we're a Chunky Glasses production. That's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's where we're most active, I think, on Twitter. Also, uh, listen to us on Google Play, Mixcloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating or message there. Coming up later this week, we are going to have a review of the Tropical Fuckstorm album named Brain Drops. So get ready for that. And uh, maybe a surprise interview. We'll see. I can't I can't spoil the surprise, except it's, it might be Jay Blakesburg. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. Okay, hang on. We'll be back in a few short days. See you later, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Kenobi!